Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. And we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 18. And the verse reads, The pessy, which is a type of fool, inherits folly or foolishness, and the arum, who is defined as a shrewd or clever person, makes knowledge a crown. Uh, so the verse could be translated without all, uh, all my back and forthing there as fools inherit folly, but the shrewd make knowledge a crown. Fools inherit folly, but the shrewd make knowledge a crown. And so as we do in our previous classes, uh, the first thing we want to do is ask, what are the questions around that verse? What doesn't make sense? What would we want to answer in order to be able to fully understand what King Solomon is trying to tell us? And greetings, Terry and Lori. Great to have you with us, too. Thanks. Fools inherit folly, but the shrewd make knowledge a crown. So what would you say the questions are? Any ideas on that? Terry, great. Why use the word inherit? That's a really kind of funny word to use. Uh, why not just fools act with folly or something like that? Excellent question. What's, what's the purpose of King Solomon picking that particular word? And I'll suggest, too, as an expansion on that, that it says fools inherit folly. Well, that seems a little redundant. I mean, we would sort of expect that a fool would would be involved in folly types of things. And then I might add to that, how does the shrewd or clever person make knowledge a crown? And what does it mean to do that? So again, our process is we try to get the questions down first and then try to figure out uh, what the answers might be. In this case, Rabbi Moskowitz has indicated that inherit is the quality that you get, whereby you get something by virtue of who you are, that is, your station in life, if you will, but not your personality or your actions. So let me, let me repeat that. Inherit is the quality you get, uh, where you get something by virtue of who you are, that is, your particular station or position in life, but it's not about your personality, your actions. Now, there is a certain development in evil and foolishness. It is part uh, uh, of the fool. It's, it's part of the, of the way the fool operates because there hasn't been a develop, uh, sorry, there hasn't been a development of his basic personality. The, the pessy, the fool, never moves from uh, an infantile state. He's never really grown beyond that. And so because of that, he inherits a certain type of foolishness. That is, he gets it by virtue of the fact that he's never moved out of an infantile state. Now, a crown represents the ultimate. I mean, the person with the crown rules the kingdom. So it's, it's a form of saying it's reaching your ultimate. The arum, that's the person in the second half of the verse, 
that's the shrewd or clever person, recognizes wisdom as the ultimate of success. That's the crown. So he makes knowledge the ultimate thing in his life. And this is the opposite of what the fool does. So the verse is showing us what happens to a fool versus what happens to a clever person. The fool continues to get foolishness in his life, you know, inherits folly because he's not grown beyond that infantile state, while the clever person sets knowledge as the ultimate in his life and gets all of the attendant consequences that come by virtue of the fact that he or she is focusing their life energy on uh, getting knowledge and then and acquiring wisdom. Okay? Any questions on that verse? And David, welcome. Glad to have you with us. We are just wrapping up Proverbs chapter 14, verse 18. Any questions on that one? Okay. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 19. And it reads, Evildoers will grovel before good people, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous ones. Evildoers will grovel before good people, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous ones. And again, we'll ask, what are the questions here? And, and again, I, I, I say this often, but it is one of the most important process steps in understanding a proverb, understanding a piece of Torah, uh, or really focusing on almost anything in life, is learning how to ask lots and lots of questions around it. We tend in our society to want to jump to answers really fast. It's like, okay, give me the answer. I just want the answer. But a development of the mind is when you begin to look at every situation and you start asking questions around it. Questions that uh, perhaps others may not ask. Uh, you know, why is this? Why did the author write it that way? Why didn't he say it this way? What does he mean by this word? Uh, what does he mean by that word? And the more practice, and this is what we do when we're working through these Proverbs, the more practice that we get at doing that, uh, then the more natural it becomes in our everyday lives. Um, the, uh, an example I've used before in this class is you, you look at a finance page on a, on a newspaper or a website, and it says, stocks drop on oil worries. Well, how did the headline writer know that? And what is his proof for that? What is his evidence for that? And is that evidence valid? And are there some other possible reasons why stocks might have dropped that day? And, you know, on and on and on. You can do this when you watch the news. If you watch a news report of any kind, you start listening to what they're telling you and asking, how do you know that? Is that really the case? Why this and not that? Uh, why do they focus on this story or this aspect of the story and not that aspect of the story? Uh, why did the reporter perhaps uh, choose to use words like provocative or uh, something along that line? So we start to ask questions not because uh, we're trying to you know, create trouble and just stir things up, but because 
we're trying to delve in and get down to the details uh, of what's really going on here and separate between what are the facts in a particular given situation and what are the interpretations in that situation. And those lines get very, very blurred uh, on a lot of things. And so people start to see interpretations as facts instead of seeing them differently. And so this process of asking questions around each verse helps us to develop that skill. Okay, uh, let me go back to your questions. Um, what is meant by uh, bend down? Charles, good. So it says, evildoers will grovel. I'm guessing your translation says bend down before good people. What does that mean? Good. Uh, Naomi, both the verses have evildoers and the wicked uh, are used against the good and the righteous. Okay, so good. There's a, there's, in the first half, we have evildoers and good people. In the second half, we have wicked and the righteous. Okay, so we've got four different classes of people identified there, and so we'd like to understand what's going on with that. Um, Terry, you've asked, is this a proper behavior, or is it the evil, the wicked, trying to manipulate the good or the righteous? Excellent. Excellent question. Uh, what's King Solomon trying to tell us there? Um, and what is the difference, Naomi Good, between a righteous person and a good person? Um, and yes, Charles, the verse reads, evildoers will grovel before good people and the wicked at the gates of the righteous ones. Uh, okay. And yes, Charles, you will find that there are different translations uh, of the words, and sometimes even not just particular words translated, but a different translator will take a, a whole different, um, not uh, hugely different, but somewhat different approach in interpreting what the Hebrew uh, you know, phraseology is. So there can be uh, different interpretations of the verse based on uh, the, you know, the way it's interpreted. Um, and so I'm going with this one, which is the way that, um, uh, that uh, uh, I had pulled this out. So, um, and I would, in, in addition to um, uh, the, the questions you've raised, I would add, why will evildoers grovel before good people? And why will the wicked grovel at the gate of the righteous ones? So... One answer, and this follows uh, Rashi and the Ibn Ezra, uh, their interpretations of this verse. One answer is that this verse follows the last verse and is talking about the pesi, the fool. He can't operate in life. Okay, and we talked about him. He's at a very infantile level. An evil person, he knows how to operate, but he is ultimately going to fail. And we've talked about that uh, a number of times on this class, that an evil person is operating outside of reality, trying to make reality conform to his or her desires. And the sheer fact that they are operating outside of reality means that sooner or later they're going to bump up against reality and there's going to be a crash. Uh, you, you can't uh, operate outside of reality forever and not run up against it. Uh, the sheer fact that you're operating outside of reality uh, means that you're eventually going to bump up against it. So the evil person, even though he knows how to operate, he's operating according to his, his emotions, his desires, his wickedness. 
he will eventually fail. The Pessy, the fool, senses that he has no way out in this, and thus he turns to the good person. Okay? So this would be the cure for the fool. He has to turn to a good person and learn, a person who uh, has some knowledge of truth and reality. Now, for the wicked, we know that they will ultimately fail. Again, because they're not operating in, in reality, their plans are going to clash with reality, and there are going to be consequences when that clash occurs. So, Matsudos holds that they'll have to eventually come begging for bread at the gates of the righteous. So, they will... Uh, people who do evil will grovel before good people. They will eventually have to get help from good people. And the wicked will eventually fail, and they will have to come begging for bread at the gates uh, of the righteous. Now, uh, to get to a question that was raised, I do not have a good answer for why one group, the evildoers, would end up groveling before good people, and the wicked would end up groveling before righteous ones, assuming that, that there's a, a categorization difference there. I don't have a good answer for why King Solomon had that uh, particular juxtaposition. What the verse seems to be teaching us is that one aspect uh, seems to be teaching us one aspect of the consequences of living a foolish or an evil or a wicked way of life. That is, it will ultimately result in failure, and we've talked about that. The foolish person isn't going to know what to do, so they're going to make mistakes. An evil person or a wicked person is really dedicated to uh, you know, following his desires and, and has some intelligence but is pointing it in the uh, in the direction of his emotions, not in the direction of reality, he's ultimately going to uh, end up in failure. So even if we see that the evil look like they're living a great life, we know that ultimately it's going to fail. Um, there have been some people, uh, you know, you can look at maybe some of the people in the history of, of the world of gangsters and so forth, yeah, they, they use a certain amount of intelligence, they get to a certain level, they think they're living the great life, uh, you know, they have all the physical pleasures around them, and what happens? They ultimately fail, they ultimately come up against reality uh, and, uh, and have to face the consequences. So we shouldn't envy them, uh, because first of all, we can see that they're ultimately going to fail. But also we shouldn't envy them because they're living in constant conflict. It's not a desirable life, even though it may look materially comfortable. And this verse is indicating that eventually the evil and the wicked will need to turn to the good and the righteous uh, for help. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 14, and I'd like to do verses 20 and 21 together. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, went through these and, uh, and pointed out the, um, 
uh, how they work together. So they read like this. A friend of a poor person will hate him, and the friends of rich people are many. He who puts down a friend is a sinner, and he who is gracious to one who is humble is happy. Or that last part could be he who is gracious to the poor is happy. So let me read it one more time. A friend of a poor person will hate him, and the friends of rich people are many. He who puts down a friend is a sinner, and he who is gracious to one who is humble is happy. So what would you say about questions around those? What are the questions? Okay, Janine, uh, is it saying that to be no respecter of persons and treat the poor and rich equally? Okay, good question. Good question. And I think we'll, we'll soon see uh, what the verse is trying to tell us in that regard. Excellent question. Okay, Naomi, you said, by shaming a person, how can that be a sin? Does your uh, translation read, a friend of a poor person will shame him, perchance? Let me grab my copy of Art Scroll because I'm thinking that's the one you might be working out of. Or are you referring to verse 21, Naomi? Um, he who puts down a friend is a sinner. I see the art school reads, he who scorns his fellow is a sinner. Um, and does your translation perhaps read, um, and is a sinner? Uh, okay. Gotcha. So it uh, sounds like yours reads, he who shames this fellow is a sinner. Um, okay, and, um, and you ask uh, the question, how can shaming be a sin? Okay, all right, good. Very good, thank you. He who shames a friend uh, is a sinner. Okay, we'll talk about that. That's a good question. That's an excellent question. Um, I'd add a couple to this list. The first part reads, a friend of a poor person will hate him. Um, my question would be, why? Why does a friend of a poor person hate him? I mean, that seems like a contradiction. I mean, if he's the poor person's friend, wouldn't he like him? And so why would he hate him? And it says that the friends of, a rich, of rich people are many. And again, I would ask, why is that? Why do rich people have lots of friends? The answer may seem obvious, but we should probably get the question down there just to be sure. And at the very end, it says, he who is gracious to the poor is happy. Why is a person who is gracious to the poor a happy person? So this is my understanding. People are generally attracted to a rich person, whether they are rich or poor. And Janine, I think this gets to, uh, to your point. If a person has wealth, people tend to be attracted to them. People like a person with wealth. Um, and it doesn't matter whether 
people are rich or poor, it seems like they tend to be attracted to a person who has wealth. So the rich person ends up with many friends because of his wealth. And that seems like a reasonable explanation of how the second half of verse 20 works. Sometimes it might be because they only want to be around him to try to get his wealth. But I'll suggest that a number of those people are just attracted to him because he is wealthy. Because people who have wealth seem to attract people. Why is that? Anyone want to take a shot at that question? Why do you think that people who are wealthy attract other people? In other words, why does a rich person seem to attract people? Anyone have a thought on that? Okay, Louis, excellent. How, how, uh, yeah, to One reason would be to learn how he got wealthy. I mean, people want to be wealthy, and so, gee, you go hang around somebody who is wealthy, and maybe we'll figure out uh, how to do it. Um, Charles, very interesting insight. Many times success comes to people who are great at interacting with others. Yes, and people who are great at interacting with others, naturally because they interact with others, probably have a lot of friends. Um, and yes, Louise, maybe I can learn from him and be the same. Um, yes, Terry and Lori, maybe that, maybe if I hang around with the rich person, that will help my status. Um, okay, good, good. Um, and you're getting at the issue that I came up with as well, which was that it seems that People see something in that rich person, uh, often and maybe almost always as wealth, that they want to have in their own life. Most people want to be wealthy. Okay? Uh, and, you know, we, we sometimes erroneously think that wealth, wealth will solve all our problems as well. Uh, someone once said, uh, poor people think that money will solve all their problems. Rich people have no such illusions. Uh, but we see that and we want, we want to be like that. We assume if we had more wealth, it's a good thing. So we want to hang around wealthy people. Um, many people want to be actors, so they hang around actors, or they follow the news about them, or they mob them for an autograph, or, or whatever. By contrast, I mean, how many people mob a septic tank repairman for his autograph? And there's a certain... You know, you know, there's a certain, or, or uh, someone who digs ditches for a living. Uh, how many people mob that person for an autograph? Uh, th there's a certain projected identification with certain people that we have. And many people have that with rich people. They want to be like rich people. They want to identify with rich people. And so the rich person ends up uh, with, you know, with many friends. Um, and, and also, it's important to note that both the rich and the poor tend to want to be friends with the rich. Okay? Now, a poor person is the opposite. People don't want to think of themselves as poor. And they don't want to be like the poor. In fact, they generally want to be the opposite of poor. So, that's not a state that they aspire to. And so there is not a projected identification with the poor. 
And so people sometimes will not want to hang out with the poor. And even the friends of the poor person really don't want to hang out with a poor person. So even though they're friends, at a certain level, the friend hates the poor person because of his poorness. Because he wants to be like the rich, not like the poor. So I'll suggest that the verse is telling us that, the first part of 20, that a friend of a poor person will hate him. That is, he'll hate that poorness. He sees the person and his poorness as being part and parcel of the same thing. And he may even see that in himself, and it's a part of him that he doesn't like about himself, but he projects it onto his friend. Um, so, uh, so even though he's the friend of the poor person, he actually has a certain level of hate uh, toward that. Okay, let me pause there and um, uh, uh, check on comments. Naomi said, this interaction is learning, teaching, or counseling. Um, this is, uh, and not, not chatting, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, the people who want to learn from perhaps the rich person. Uh, <laughs> Louis, very good. Uh, maybe you will mob a septic person when you need him. Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, very good point. Um, okay, and yes, poor brings on pity, and, and Terry and Laura, you mentioned trickle-down economics. Um, so it's an interesting psychological thing going on here, as I understand it, that the poor person, uh, a, a friend of a poor person, uh, will perhaps not like something about himself or that, uh, that aspect of the poor being their poorness. And so even though they're a friend of the person, uh, there's a certain level of hatred there. Okay. Any questions so far on that? Okay. Now, the first half of verse 21. So we've already talked about both halves of verse 20. Friend of a poor person will hate him. The friends of rich people are many. So the next part, in the first part of verse 21 reads, He who puts down a friend is a sinner. So why is he a sinner? Naomi, I think you raised that question early on. Why is he a sinner? Shaming him or putting him down, why is that a sin? So is it ever appropriate to put a person down? Well, possibly if he is an evil person. There are certain cases where it's appropriate to do that, although we would need to study that area very carefully to understand when and where. But if the person is a friend, then why am I putting him down? I mean, the verse reads, he who puts down a friend is a sinner. Okay? Well, it would seem that there has to be some emotion in me that wants to be satisfied. And I think that by putting someone else down, it's going to satisfy that emotion. Putting someone else down is a disattachment from the other person. It's failing to recognize their humanness too, right along with mine. Now a really radical example of this 
is I will submit to you that Hitler and the Nazis were able to do the things they did to the Jews during the Holocaust because they managed to convince themselves that the Jews were a lower life form, not like them. They were able to disassociate seeing the Jews as people like them because if they had identified with them as people like themselves, they wouldn't have been able to do what they did. And that's a, an extreme example, but we see this kind of thing in society as well today. There are, for example, uh, very exclusive kinds of clubs where, you know, unless you are of the right pedigree or you make a certain amount of money or whatever, you can't be part of that club. And there's the, what that does is it makes a distinction between us and them. Us being, you know, the elite or the whatever, them being something else. But we're different. That's the, that's the sort of the very subtle psychological mindset. And so there's a disattachment from, uh, you know, one uh, group of people uh, to another. So that disattachment is a very dangerous thing because once you disattach from another person then you can justify doing all kinds of things to them and justify it in your own mind because after all they're not like me you know they're not they're not the same level they're not the same this they're not the same that and so uh, that could be going on with regard to putting down your friend in another vein there is a certain duplicitousness when a person puts down a friend. He's giving the friend the impression that he's a friend, but he's turning around and putting him down at the same time. So in, in that sense, what's the sin? It would seem, and this is philosophical, not to the best of my knowledge, halakhic, not, not the, a Torah law so much as the philosophy of Torah, it seems like the sin would be the lack of truth that's taking place here. Because it would seem to be that you're deceiving, making your friend think that you're his friend, so he trusts you when in reality you're not. Because you're turning around and shaming him or putting him down uh, in front of other people. Okay? All right, let me pause there. Um, and Janine, you ask, so what if the person is not put down intentionally? Uh, then I think we're talking about a different, a different case. I think the case of, uh, of verse 21 is he who puts down a friend uh, intentionally with, with the intent of doing that. Uh, if a person makes a, a comment that, you know, it was totally unintended and accidentally uh, is, is put someone down, that, I think, is a different case, uh, which we'd, we'd have to look at. And, and we could potentially look into, gee, is there something subconscious going on or something like that, but that's a little beyond my, uh, uh, my range here. Uh, so I, I think the verse is talking about a, an intent to put them down. Um, uh, David, you said um, uh, maybe you should not be with friends with someone you despise. You may begin to hate yourself. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, it's, it's very important to pick your friends very carefully uh, and to understand 
uh, who it is that you're friends with, who you're spending time with, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, because if you're uh, friends with someone that you uh, can't stand, uh, you, you're in kind of contradiction to yourself uh, because you're making the outward appearance that you're friends with them, but your inner part is saying, I can't stand this guy. Uh, so you, you need to reconcile that. Um, uh, okay, and yeah, Charles, uh, it's very ironic because uh, it's true that there were many uh, doctors and, and successful business people and, and incredible minds in the Jewish community uh, in Germany. Uh, and yet, the propaganda machine and the, the you know, sort of brainwashing of, of, of the Nazis and the SS and uh, so forth, uh, m those people apparently, as I understand it, managed to uh, convince themselves that these people were, were somehow of a, you know, a, a lesser type of person. Um, and Luis, you've, you've uh, pointed out the Nazi top doctor said that the Jews were like an infected appendix, uh, so the doctor had to get rid of it. Yeah, that's a justification in his mind. See, he's taking that whole class of people and calling them something and thereby justifying, uh, you know, one of the most horrific crimes in human history. Uh, and people have the capability to do that, so we have to be very, very careful about such matters. Okay, so what about the second half of verse 21? It says, he who is gracious to the poor is happy. So how does that work? So I'll suggest that a person who is gracious to the poor recognizes that the poor person is not unlike him. In other words, he doesn't disconnect or disattach from the poor person. He recognizes, oh, this poor person is a person, just like me. He has needs, and uh, he does his best to help the poor person. So I'll submit that this person recognizes his true position in life, that he is just one person in a giant sea of humanity. He lives a life of justice, and part of that is helping the poor. And he also recognizes that he, too, could be in that position. He doesn't consider himself to be better than someone else or over someone else or in a better class than someone else or whatever. He's, he's uh, I think that's the, the definition of, of humility is recognizing your true place in the universe. He recognizes that I am just one person and I happen to be in this set of circumstances. I was born in this particular society. And that doesn't make me, you know, better or worse than, uh, than a person who was born in a different set of circumstances. So, uh, because of that outlook, because of seeing the true reality of himself, how he fits into the world, and the reality of other people, he's happy. Why? Because he sees the truth. And he lives in accordance with it. And I will submit to you that it's that life philosophy that makes him happy. His graciousness to the poor is a manifestation of that philosophy. His happiness stems from living in accordance with reality and operating in accordance with that knowledge. And so how he treats a poor person 
is indicative of that philosophy and tells us something about him. Okay, any questions on either of these verses? Uh, beautiful ideas where we, we see, uh, first of all, the, in the, we've got kind of four parts all together here. Uh, the first half of verse 20, uh, where we see how a friend of a poor person uh, could hate him. Uh, the second half of verse 20, why the rich people have many friends, uh, which may be because of some motivations that they have, uh, they're operating within them. So we see some, some, some conscious motivations going on here. The friend of the poor person potentially hating him because of something going on within himself. The friends of the rich people wanting to be friends with the rich because they have this desire to be like them. Uh, a person putting down a friend uh, may have some uh, you know, subconscious uh, things going on, trying to disattach. And finally, the person who is gracious to the poor is really happy because he's the guy or the woman living in accordance with reality. All right, in that case, let's move on. Um, I'd like to just pause and insert a comment or two from Rabbi Moskowitz, my notes from his class, uh, about frustration. Few of us probably like to be frustrated. Frustration is not a very, uh, generally considered to be a very fun place to be. But Rabbi Moskowitz has pointed out that frustration, as you try to work through life, is okay. I mean, we tend to think of frustration as a bad thing. But many times, if you're trying to reach a particular uh, goal or get a particular uh, gain in something, you have to push yourself the last little bit, the last inch or so, to get the gain in whatever it is that you're doing. And if you try to avoid that discomfort, you're avoiding the reality of living. And you can also miss the gain that's possible. So for example, uh, if you're going to exercise for 20 minutes, probably the biggest gains in the exercise are coming in the last few minutes of that 20-minute session, not in the first few minutes. Uh, I'm not an exercise physiologist, but my, my guess is that that is, is the way it works. That we, we push ourselves to a certain degree, and then if we can push ourselves past that frustration point a little bit further, we get a gain. I mean, you obviously have to know what your limits are and when it's safe to do that. But what we need to recognize with regard to frustration is that frustration is not necessarily a bad thing. Once you remove from your, your mind the incorrect value system that frustration is bad, then you can start to see the desire, excuse me, start to desire the frustration because you see that it's a benefit. Okay, it's a way to get the best out of life. Okay, now you, to do that, you have to distinguish between the frustration of life and the frustration of consequences. Most consequences that we get are because we didn't want the pain and frustration in a certain situation, so we tried to avoid it, and now we get the consequences. Uh, but if we can recognize that, uh, that uh, if we run up against a certain frustration, it's an opportunity for us uh, to look at something and learn from it. Now, there's also frustration that occurs uh, because you're not 
giving in to your emotions. For example, um, if a person has been smoking for a long time, giving up smoking is a certain frustration. In fact, I'll suggest that any time you have to stop doing an act that you want to do, or you have to do an act that you don't want to do, you'll be frustrated. Uh, but if the consequences of not following through are too bad, then you'll overcome the frustration because you want to avoid the long-term consequences. Rabbi Moskowitz suggested creativity is looking at life from a different angle. And by seeing life from another angle, you can help yourself through the frustration that you're experiencing and help eliminate it. If we see frustration simply as something to be avoided altogether, then, yeah, we're saying it's bad and I don't want that and whatever. But if we see frustration as a big opportunity, this is, ah, why am I frustrated with this? Is there something about reality that I don't see? Because if I were truly accepting reality and truly understood uh, the reality of this particular situation, then I wouldn't be frustrated. So the fact that I am frustrated suggests that there's an opportunity here for me to learn. Uh, and anytime we have an opportunity to learn, uh, that's, uh, that can be a really positive thing. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, so let's move on to uh, Proverbs chapter 14. And I am just noticing that I seem to have skipped over verse 22 and 23. Oh, that's rather odd. Um, so we'll have to come back to those. But let's jump on to uh, verse 24, which reads, The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the foolishness of fools is but foolishness. That certainly raises some interesting questions. What would you say the questions are uh, on that? The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the foolishness of fools is but foolishness. And thanks, Janine. Glad that's helpful. Okay, you've brought up, uh, does this bring a question of not all wealth is material? Very good question. Uh, I think that can be true. And so we'll have to, let's hold that. That's a good question. David, you've asked wealth in what? Yes. Um, and Charles, you said it seems like it's saying that foolishness leads to nothing. Uh, that's true. We'll want to ask that question. On the second half, the foolishness of fools is but foolishness seems like a tremendous redundancy. Uh, like, okay, so King Solomon, why are you telling me that? That seems pretty obvious. Uh, seems like I should know that without you having to tell me. So what's... What's there that we're trying to get out of that? I would also ask, what's a crown? Um, and how is, uh, the, how is wealth the crown of the wise? Um, so let's start with the definition of a crown. Uh, we talked about this in a previous verse, but let's, let's work just from this verse. We're going to take what we can uh, out of out of this verse, what do you think a crown is? What is 
the purpose of a crown. Okay, Charles, you said crown is something worn by a leader. Okay, good. Louis, a visual indicator. Excellent. Good thoughts. Uh, and I'm going to combine those and suggest that a crown is an outward indicator of a certain level of status generally commanding respect. Okay? Uh, an outward indicator of a certain level of status that generally commands respect. Now, the verse says, for the wise, their wealth is that crown. So why is that? And I'll suggest the following. The reason is, and it gets a little bit back to what we just talked about, because wealth is a value that is generally respected by everyone. Most people will give more credence, more uh, respect, if you will, to a wealthy person than a non-wealthy person, all other things being equal. So a wise person who is poor may be ignored by the people because he is poor, but a wise person who is wealthy will likely command more respect, even if the levels of wisdom between uh, the wealthy wise person and the poor wise person are the same. Because again, people tend to think more highly of a wealthy person than a poor person. So, the wealth of a wise person is a crown to his head, as, in other words, it, because it commands respect and gives him the opportunity both to continue his learning, which is a benefit for him, and to potentially influence others. Okay, the wealth is seen by other people. Okay, and it provides two benefits, one for him and one for his ability to be able to influence uh, other people. Okay, and David, you said purpose of a crown is to designate a king. Yes, that's true. An outward indicator of the status of uh, a king, which is someone who commands respect. And Luisius serves like medals in the military. Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah indicates that the second half of the verse is about uh, the words, their wealth, also. So the first half says, the crown of the wise is their wealth. And Rabbeinu Yonah indicates the second half of the verse is about the wealth, too. So he reads it something like this. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the wealth of fools is their folly. So he seems to take the position that the subject of the verse is wealth. And what we have here is a contrast in what it means for the wise versus what it means for the foolish. And for a fool, wealth can be very dangerous. Why? Because he won't use it wisely. He'll just use it to further his foolishness. When you have wealth, I listened to a guy once who was uh, pretty wealthy. And he said the only thing wealth really does is makes, uh, makes you uh, kind of, I think he said it, more of what you are. In other words, when you have wealth, it basically just allows you to make decisions that have a bigger and bigger effect. Um, so if a person is really wise, but has little money, 
So he has a certain sphere of influence with his wisdom. But if a person is wise and has a lot of money, he can, in essence, magnify his wise decisions and do very helpful things with that wealth, both for himself and for society. So the, the wealth leverages or magnifies the decisions that he's already making. Now, by contrast, a fool with no money can only do so much foolishness. But a fool with wealth can really do a lot of foolish things. He can use it to magnify those foolish decisions and essentially do a lot of foolishness. So if a person is making bad decisions and has a lot of money, he basically can make a lot bigger bad decisions. Uh, and similarly, a wise person with wealth. So it seems that from the Rabbeinu Yonah's standpoint, the verse is showing us what wealth means for the wise versus the foolish and how they use it. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, I think we have time for one more. So let's go on to chapter 14, verse 25. And the verse reads, A truthful witness saves souls, but one who spouts deception is deceitful. A truthful witness saves souls, but one who spouts deception is deceitful. What do you think the questions are? Okay, so David, you said it seems obvious, and we see it seems straightforward. So let me ask a couple questions then. How does a truthful witness save souls? And importantly, when it says one who spouts deception is deceitful, that seems pretty obvious. Uh, I mean, what is that telling us that we don't already know? Because King Solomon would presumably have known that we would know the obvious, that a person who spouts deception is deceitful. So what could it be that he actually means here? So let me suggest some possibilities. A truthful witness can save souls two ways. First, he can save someone who is innocent and might be wrongly convicted. So if a person is being brought forth for a crime and they didn't do it, the truthful witness can save that soul from potentially death, being, being uh, perhaps uh, uh, executed um, uh, wrongly. Second, if the truthful witness testifies against a murderer who would otherwise go free and kill again, he saves the souls of future victims. And so by his testimony, that murderer cannot go out and repeat that crime. And so future souls, or future victims rather, their souls are saved. So that helps us with the first half. Okay? And David, you said speaking the truth can give proper directions. Uh, yes, although in this case, the verse is talking specifically about saving souls and I'm taking that literally, in other words, saving lives, 
Uh, I mean, there are some, I think some, uh, you know, commentaries that get into issues about the world to come with regard to that. And I'm going with the, just sort of a literal uh, meaning of the verse here. Now, by contrast, a person who spouts deception is considered a deceitful person. Why? He may lie on the witness stand to save a guilty person who is unjust to save. In other words, that person may have already done a lot of damage to others, and when he's set free, he may continue to do much damage to other people, maybe even kill them. So a person who always lies, who spouts deception, and this is the Mitsudas David's position, that person will save a deceitful man with his false testimony. He, Mitsudas David interprets the verse that one who spouts deception saves the deceitful person by way of his false testimony. So, in that approach, the subject of the verse seems to be the effect of testimony, that is, comparing the effect on others of a truthful witness's testimony, which saves souls, saves people's lives, versus the effect on others of the testimony of one who spouts deception, which will result in souls or lives being destroyed. Okay. And the way you said uh, an example is of uh, Schindler during World War II, who saved uh, many souls afterwards. Yes, uh, he, he definitely did, based on my understanding. Um, in that case, I don't think that's what this verse is getting at, uh, because I think this verse is getting at when it talks about a witness. It's talking about a person who's going to actually testify in a court of law about uh, a particular case. Uh, and that's not to take away anything from Schindler, who, through his actions, as I understand it, saved uh, many souls uh, during World War II, uh, you know, doing very, very uh, righteous things to do that. So, good point. Yeah, and a witness, uh, if your translation reads witness of truth, uh, the translation that I was given was truthful witness. So that would be someone who is known to tell the truth on the witness stand in a court of law, uh, is the way that I'm understanding that. Okay, any other questions on that verse? Okay, in that case, we will stop here for the evening. And thank you so much for joining. I appreciate your participation and hope you can join us next week.